We are in Mark chapter 12. So grab a Bible, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. We are in a series on Jesus and the Gospel of Mark. And today we come to this fascinating chapter, which is all about the different arguments Jesus faced uh, coming from the hostile, angry religious leaders of Israel. Here in this chapter, actually um, in this section, this chapter is a part of this section, Jesus is asked question after question by these religious leaders. Most of them are dripping with poison. Most of them are designed to expose Jesus, to trap Jesus. Now you would think if God became a man and visited planet Earth, He would be treated differently. But not the Prince of Peace. He knew no peace. He received no peace. He was extended no peace. And what's so interesting about this chapter we've been in over the last couple of weeks is that these attacks on Jesus designed to trap Jesus were used by Jesus to clarify his teaching and to reveal more and more of his supernatural wisdom and the majesty, if you will, of his mind. Now, whatever you are filled with overflows when you are bumped. Now, think about that. Whatever you're filled with comes out, flows out, overflows when you're bumped. So if you're filled with anger, you get bumped, what comes out? Anger. If you're filled with love, what comes out is love. If you're filled with Jesus, what comes out is Jesus. Here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is repeatedly bumped. And we come, when we come to the end of the chapter, today we're going to look at the last ten verses. What comes out from our Lord is absolutely beautiful. Because here Jesus actually turns the tables. And instead of being asked questions, Jesus asks a question. Now I want you to get the context. I want you to understand what's going on here in chapter 12. So what I want to do is actually uh, go to something that uh, John Stott, a British theologian, once said about this chapter, about these hostile questions. Look, for example, at verse 13. I want you to note verse 13, because here we see that the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Herodians were Jews that were sympathetic to Herod, uh, they come to trap Jesus. We're told they come to catch Jesus, to trap him. Then if you go to verse 18, notice it's not the Pharisees, it's the Sadducees who come and ask this question about the resurrection. And what they're trying to do is make our Lord look stupid. Trying to expose him, trying to take out his popular ministry. Now the Pharisees were the conservatives of first century Israel. They emphasized Old Testament law. They emphasized rule keeping and they did not they did not believe in grace. The Sadducees on the other hand weren't the conservatives, they were the liberals. They believed in God but they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in heaven, they didn't believe in afterlife, they didn't believe in judgment. We see in verse 18 that they didn't believe in resurrection, the general resurrection at the end of time. The Pharisees were the experts in the Old Testament law, but they were wound up way too tightly. 
and they were harsh moralists. The Sadducees were the wealthy aristocrats who were self-absorbed, almost relativists. So you got the moralists and the relativists. All of them, however, you've got to understand, were Jews. They made up the Jewish leadership of Israel, the religious leadership of Israel, and yet they were miles apart. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because what John Stott tells us is that these two groups represent the two spectrums of thought that usually show up in history in most cultures. So there are those that emphasize morality and those that emphasize personal choice, freedom, autonomy. Uh, those that emphasize law, those that emphasize love. Those that are conservative, those that are liberal. And the point here in Mark chapter 12 is that Jesus opposes both. Jesus doesn't fit into either camp. Jesus doesn't fit into the religious, moralistic, conservative camp that overlooks grace and underweights compassion. And he doesn't fit into the anything goes. Money and status is what makes the world go around. Personal freedom camp that is anti-supernatural. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees know this. They know that Jesus doesn't fit. Jesus isn't a traditionalist. Jesus isn't a progressive. And they're gagging over this. They're choking over this. And so what Mark 12 reveals is that Jesus is neither. Christianity is neither. Because Christianity is the cross. Christianity is the gospel. Uh, on the cross, we see both the moral justice and the, the love of God being satisfied in the death of Christ. So the Pharisees uh, didn't believe in grace. They didn't believe in, in mercy. They didn't believe uh, that, that God could be satisfied apart from their own works, apart from rule-keeping, apart from law-keeping. The Sadducees didn't believe in a God of justice, uh, uh, that God would judge. So, uh, the Pharisees, so I should say to the Pharisees, Jesus was a liberal. To the Sadducees, Jesus was a conservative. And Jesus doesn't fit in any box. He doesn't fit in any camp. But he doesn't fit in, in any party. Jesus is neither. And what is so very interesting is Jesus is not in the middle. Because Jesus is more conservative, more moral than the Pharisees, and more loving, more compassionate than the Sadducees. Now the questions that are asked of Jesus are really significant questions to get at significant issues. Uh, so Jesus is asked, for example, about taxes in Mark chapter 12. He's asked about the afterlife, the resurrection. He's asked about the greatest uh, commandment. But I say all this because I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. 
What ties Mark chapter 12 together is that there is no one, no one like Jesus. There is nothing like the gospel, which reveals both the holiness of God and the love of God. And I want you to understand that Jesus can't be labeled. Again, Jesus can't be boxed. And the more you and I grasp the uniqueness of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the transcendence of Jesus, the more compelled we are to follow him. And all of this is going on right under the surface with these questions in Mark chapter 12. Now what I want to do is go to our passage. I want to come to these last 10 verses in this chapter because here at the end of this chapter, as I said, uh, instead of be answering a question, Jesus now asks a question. And if Jesus is asking a question, you know it's a really, really important question. Let's pick it up in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now let me stop there for a moment. Did you see what Jesus just said? Jesus is about to quote Psalm 110 verse 1, by the way, That psalm is the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. Most quoted Old Testament passage. Jesus is about to quote uh, this famous, this familiar uh, psalm of, of David. But Jesus says David was speaking by the Holy Spirit. So why do we believe the Bible is true? Why do I believe the Bible is true? Why do we refer refer to the Bible as God's Word? Because in passages like this, we see one of the reasons is Jesus tells us David was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now what is Divine inspiration. What is the divine inspiration of the scriptures? Well, uh, look up behind me. It's a big biblical author is being superintended, supernaturally superintended by the Holy Spirit to, to write in such a way that their words become the very words of God. What they write becomes the very words of God. God the Holy Spirit superintends that. So it's not just the thoughts of Scripture that are inspired, it's the very words of Scripture that are divinely inspired. That is Jesus' point here when he says speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now what that means is you and I don't have the luxury of being able to dismiss different parts of the Bible that we might think are primitive or we might be uh, 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 uncomfortable with. Jesus won't let us do that. We believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible because Jesus did. Now that was just a parenthesis. Let's go on. Sorry. Now we have the quote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd, unlike the religious leaders, listened to him with delight. Now the point Jesus is making here is he is God. Here Jesus is telling the crowds in the temple courts the reason why they should believe in him and the reason why they should believe in him is because of who he is. Who is Jesus? The Old Testament predicted 
over and over a coming Messiah. Uh, The anointed one who would vanquish Israel's enemies, who would establish Israel's dominion, and who would establish God's worldwide kingdom. Uh, The Messiah would come, the Messiah would do all of that. Almost all the Jews of Jesus' day believed that. They believed in the coming uh, Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. They also believed, because of Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. So here, when Jesus says, son of David, he's speaking figuratively. He means descendant of David. Now, if all that's true that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, Jesus says, well, how then do you explain Psalm 110 and verse 1? Where David declares, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, that the Messiah would be David's Lord. How do you explain that? How can David's son be David's Lord? How can David's son be David's God? And the answer Jesus is getting at is Jesus is both. The Messiah is both. He is both fully human, a descendant of David, and fully God. He is the son of David and the son of God. And what Jesus is doing here, and it's so very interesting, is he is indicting the religious teachers for a human view of the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus is saying, will not merely be a human king. The Messiah will be a divine king. He will not merely put down Israel's enemies. He's going to put down human sin. In other words, Jesus is saying the teachers of the law were half right. They got the descendant of David part. They missed the uh, Lord of David part. So, Think about this context here in the face of overwhelming hostility from the leaders of Israel, from the opposition. Jesus is boldly, unequivocally, backed by the authority of the Old Testament, Psalm 110 and verse 1, claiming to be God. Jesus is saying... I am the transcendent, unique, one-of-a-kind God. You cannot box me in. You cannot reduce me to a camp. Jesus is saying, I am fully human. I am fully uh, divine. And what I want to do is others uh, uh, do in in moments like this and others have done before me is I want to go to another passage to illustrate this passage. And, And let's go to what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Fascinating. Look at what Paul says. Jews demand signs. Some translate signs miracles. Jews demand miracles. And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now Paul is saying something profound. Paul is saying every culture has its belief system and its support for its belief system. And Paul is telling us the Jews were pragmatists. They wanted signs. 
They demanded miracles. Show me a miracle and then we'll believe. Uh, the Greeks were different. The Greeks were rationalists. They wanted arguments. Or, uh, here the word is wisdom. They wanted logic. Give me a good argument and, and, and then we'll believe. But Paul says Jesus doesn't fit into either box. Because Jesus is the God-man who was crucified to satisfy the moral justice of God and who rescued us from our sins to satisfy the love of God. Paul is teaching, in other words, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we see Jesus saying here in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is unique. The gospel is unique. Jesus is supreme. He is transcendent. He cannot, he cannot be put in this box or that box. Now, the Bible is full of incredible miracles, Old Testament, New Testament. I happen to think there are wonderful arguments for the existence of God. And when I came to Christ as a college student in, in uh, Dallas, Texas, man, part of that whole process was just digesting the different arguments for the existence of God. And they were really, really helpful. Like the design inherent in creation points to a designer. You got a watch, a complexity of a watch. It argues, it begs for a watchmaker. All those arguments and more, all, all good. But here... In Mark chapter 12, verses 35, 36, and 37, Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate argument. See me as I am. Exactly as the Old Testament described me. Fully God, fully man. Believe in me, submit in me as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am not just David's son, I am David's God. Now, as, as, as others have pointed out, here's why this matters. Some people, maybe some people you know, uh, maybe some of you are, are like this, are waiting for proof of the existence of God. They're waiting for a sign, a miracle. Uh, some are waiting for uh, arguments, uh, logic. Some people are waiting for the right set of circumstances, the right job, the right boyfriend, the right girlfriend, the right this, uh, the right that. And sometimes consciously um, or unconsciously, uh, the, the thinking is, you know, when that happens, then I'll believe. Waiting for a sign. They want an airtight, indisputable evidence. And the problem, if that's you, is you might wait forever. Forever. Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter 12, God is not obligated to provide airtight, airtight arguments, airtight miracles, because God has provided an airtight, indisputable person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, who is infinite in power. Jesus, who is infinite in grace. Jesus, who alone is unique. There is no one like 
Jesus. He is tender without being weak. He is loving without being spineless. He is honest without being brutal. Jesus never missteps. Jesus never misspeaks. In the Gospels, he's always loving. He's always caring. He's always compassionate all the way to the cross. Now, I personally love uh, signs, love miracles, love. I've traveled enough around the world, different ministry contexts. Man, I love signs and wonders. I, I love the dreams and visions and all of that. But Jesus here is saying, life starts with me, it's sustained by me, and it ends with me. Jesus is the ocean. Signs, they're a mud puddle in comparison. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Now let me go on. That's just the first three verses of the last ten. What happens next is Jesus downshifts. And he moves from who he is to how we respond, specifically what holds us back from following him. And he's going to illustrate it in two different ways. One's going to be a negative. The first is going to be a negative example. The second will be a positive. So let's start with the negative. Let's pick it up in verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. These were white linen robes with all sorts of fancy bells and whistles and little tassels. I mean, totally different than how the typical Jew dressed. Amen. They just, they just stood out and they loved to stand out in these white linen robes. They liked to walk around in these flowing robes. They liked to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place, places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. That's awful. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now here, Jesus unequivocally condemns the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus, if you will, is hot. He uses strong words at the end of this section. Punished most severely means abundant judgment. Abundant judgment. Now, Jesus, what holds us back from following you, from responding to the one who is the only one who is unique, the one who is transcendent? What holds us back? Well, making life all about ourselves, just as the religious leaders of Israel did. Making life all about your appearance, all about your image, all about what you are on Facebook, or all about your tweets, and on and on. And of all people, the teachers of the law in first century Israel, contemporaries of Jesus, should have known better. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a guy who played in the NFL. And he was talking about a teammate, and he said, uh, a, a well-known um, NFL personality. And he said, you know, you know this guy has a, $150,000 diamond-studded jacket that he wears all around. And he said, everybody talks about it, and he said, you know, frankly, there's other guys in the locker room like that. Now, I would sort of expect that from the NFL, right? 
but from the religious leaders of first century Israel? Really? Really? Longing to be masters, they made life all about themselves and they forgot how to be servants. And you will never ever be a servant if life is all about you. Now I want you to note the final verse here. Look at verse 40. Notice that Jesus also condemns these religious leaders for their lack of compassion toward the poor. Specifically, their injustice towards widows. Unconscionable. So what holds us back from following Jesus? Like the religious leaders when we make life so much about ourselves that we may say we believe Jesus is Lord, but functionally we act as if we are Lord. Uh, some years ago now, when I was in a, a, a stressful period in ministry, uh, somebody that knew me well uh, said to me, Rob, Rob, who made you Lord? Who made you the Holy Spirit? Who made you the master of the universe? Now, I, I got to tell you, that really hurt. But they were exactly right. That was exactly the way I was acting. That was exactly why I was so stressed. Life can easily become all about us. Now let me go on to the second illustration. Here we move from the negative to the positive. And let's read verses beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, leptas, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth, listen to what I'm about to say because I'm about to tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all others. They all give out of their wealth, but she has given out of her poverty. She's put in everything, all she had to live on. Now on a socioeconomic spectrum, this woman is the opposite of the religious elite. That Jesus condemns them and exalts this poverty-stricken <clears throat> single woman, maybe she was a single parent, this woman who uh, lived in a culture that devalued women, that, that Jesus uh, condemns the religious leaders and exalts this single woman is stunning. Now you may think that because of hardship in your life, you may think because of disappointment you've gone through, you, you may uh, feel because of setbacks you're experiencing right now that Jesus has forgotten about you. But man, notice, notice what's going on here. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus elevates this no-name woman that nobody would recognize, notice, care about. And look at the last line. She put in everything, all she had to live on. All she had to live on comes from a little Greek word, bios, 
It's the Greek word we get our English word biology from. It means life. Jesus is saying this precious single woman gave her life. All of it. If anyone in Israel was all in, if anyone in Israel was totally invested in living for God, totally dependent on the living God, totally trusting in God, it was this woman and it was her generosity that demonstrated that. Now I'm not going to say at this point, as some pastors say, what this story teaches is that Jesus is watching you when you put money into the offering plate. Not going to say that, okay? But I am going to say this is absolutely why we must give and continue to give and give generously because our giving matters to Jesus because our giving reveals what we love. And here Jesus, our Lord, values not the amount given but the cost to the giver. And the reason we give, and all of us should give, and give generously to the kingdom of God, generously to the poor, generously to a variety of different ministries, is because it's a statement of who we love, who we worship. And here this widow who had so little gave so much. Uh, We tend to give out of what we can spare. She spared nothing. We tend to give out of the margins. She gave her life. Her amount was the smallest that day, but her sacrifice was the greatest. And by the way, I'm just going to speak personally for a moment. I have learned over the years that I really don't like to talk about giving because when I talk about giving, people get sort of bent out of shape and they, they say things like, you know, all the church ever talks about is money. All you ever talk about is Rob. And, or all you, all you, Rob, ever talk about is, is money. And so, you know, comments like that over the years have kind of taken the the fun out of talking about this biblical concept of giving, and I do talk about it. But along the way, there's been another reason that I found that I don't like talking about giving so much, and that is every time I speak on this subject, Rhonda comes home and says, okay, Rob, we need to give more. And one, to me, one of the great mysteries of the, the kingdom of God is how you can speak on a subject like this and some people will say, oh man, all the church talks about is money. And other people will say, man, we need to give more. And the takeaway for me is be very careful about who you marry. <laughs> really careful. Now, I really appreciate what Pastor Tim Keller does at this point. I'm borrowing heavily in this message from Tim Keller. It's a great message on this subject. Here he asks a wonderful question, a dynamite question. He asks this question, why end a chapter on controversy, on skepticism, on questions coming from hostile Jewish leaders to Jesus? Does Mark conclude Jesus' public teaching? And this is the end of Jesus' public teaching here at the end of Mark chapter 12. Why does he conclude this with an example of a poverty stricken woman a widow to boot and the answer is because the fundamental human problem is not intellectual it's not a problem of our mind it's a problem of our heart and the point Jesus is making is what holds us back from following him is our fear 
we're scared. The fear of losing control. And when this dear woman gives her bios, her life, all she has to live on, she gives up control. And she gives her life totally and completely, irrevocably to the living God. And frankly, what holds you back, what holds me back, is the fear of losing control. So we learned from the religious leaders uh, earlier that what holds us back is making life all about ourselves. Here what we learn is this fear we have of giving up control, of losing control. And by the way, this control thing is an issue for both religious people and secular people. Uh, underneath, it's, it's the same. Uh, because religious people want to control their relationship with God by how they perform, what they do, by uh, what they uh, don't do. And they say, here I am, God. Hey, by the way, downstream, don't let this happen because look how I've lived. It's a form of control. Secular people, it's a, it's a little different. It's look what I have done with my own hands. I'm not going to bow the knee to anybody. It's ultimate control. The reality is we're all fearful. We're fearful from punishment, as somebody said to me after the last service. We're fearful of failure. And the reason we don't fully follow Jesus and the reason we don't generously give to Jesus of our time, our talent, and our treasure and the reason we hold back and the reason we're not all in and the reason we harbor secret pockets of disobedience is because we're scared. We're fearful. So Mark begins the gospel Chapter 1, verse 17, with Jesus saying, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, fishers of women, fishers of students, fishers of ch children. And here G Mark concludes Jesus' public ministry, his public teaching, I should say, with an incredible example uh, of someone you wouldn't expect, someone you, you wouldn't notice doing just that, following Jesus. It's interesting to me, fascinating to me, that when Jesus wants to elevate a model of what a disciple of Jesus looks like, at the end of his public ministry, he goes to this widow. The widow of Mark 12 illustrates the concepts of Mark chapter 1. And the only way you and I will fully follow Jesus is by giving up uh, uh, our, our fear of losing control. And the only way we'll give up our fear of losing control is if we see Jesus as he reveals himself here, as the unique, transcendent, supreme, uh, living God, fully God, fully man. Now, what's amazing here is as great an illustration of discipleship this widow is, she's also an illustration of Jesus. She points to Jesus. She's a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus, too, lived in poverty. Jesus also was born into poverty, lived in poverty. And in just a few short days from this moment, Jesus will go to the cross to die in our place for our sin. And Jesus, in that moment, will ultimately lose control.
He will give up control. For us. He will give His life for ours. So think about this. Jesus Christ came to earth to lose control. To give up control. In order to to rescue all of us from the the petty, joyless life of trying to be in control. And the antidote to, to your tendency to want to control things, my tendency to want to control things, I'm at the top of the list, is when we see Jesus as he is, it melts our heart. It creates faith. Remember the story um, some years ago of Blondin, arguably the world's greatest acrobat? 150 years ago or so, he stretches this rope, tightrope across Niagara Falls. And not only does he walk across the tightrope, but he turns this into a media event. And thousands of people come. And he goes back and forth multiple times across Niagara Falls. It's about 1,000, 1,300 feet on this, what, two-inch diameter, three-inch diameter rope that sagged about 60 feet in the middle. He would go across blindfolded. He went across with bags on his shoulders, carrying these big um, 19th century cameras. At one point, he took a wheelbarrow with with a stove, cooked an omelet, and stood there on one foot and ate the omelet on the tightrope. There goes Niagara Falls. And then he went to a group of people and said, will one of you let me carry you across? And what do you think they said? Some of you are kind of feeling sweaty right now, you know. (laughs) Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, what happened is a group of people came forward and said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. And so he realized what was at stake. So one by one, he went to each of them and he asked them, they put them in a line and they asked them uh, two questions. Do you believe I can uh, uh, get you across? Yes. Will you let me take you across? No. Do you believe I can get you across? Yes. Will you let me take you across? No. No one would let him do it. Thousands of people. They estimate there are 100,000 people there. Finally, he took his manager across on his shoulders. Now, I want you this morning, the whole point is I want you to be all in with Jesus Christ. I want you to fully follow, completely follow him. But I want you to understand our problem isn't just that we're unbelieving. Our problem is that we're fearful. And we're fearful specifically of giving up control because we have bought into this crazy lie that we will do a better job of managing our life than Jesus Christ. May God give you the grace to see Jesus for who he is. Let's pray. Now, Father, is... We come to this moment. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us. We ask that you would give us a greater grace, that you would change us. And Father, I want to pray that you would reveal your Son. 
as we give to you now, we give to you because you have so richly and wonderfully given to us. And we thank you. And as we worship God, speak to us. For Jesus' sake, amen.